This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Peace, everyone. Hello, Ahlain. Thank you for joining us today. Um, my name is Zain Al-Sus. Um, I am the proud daughter of Palestinian refugees and an organizer with the Dream Defenders, an organization of powerful young people building popular movements in Florida and beyond under the banner of socialism, abolition, internationalism, and feminism. I'm connecting with you all from land first stewarded by our indigenous relatives and kindred, uh, the Seminole and Tequesta people, and I am honored to be moderating today's conversation, exploring the ongoing struggles for prison abolition and self-determination for oppressed nations from here to Palestine. In a time of escalating and consolidating ethno-fascism from Brazil to India to Israel and, of course, the U.S., and in the wake of one of the largest mass uprisings in U.S. history in response to a police lynching of a black man, George Floyd, we enter this conversation holding the gravity and responsibility of linking our shared struggles for indigenous sovereignty, emancipation, and the freedom to live in our full dignity with the boot of U.S. imperialism off of our necks. Before I introduce our participants, I want to thank the co-sponsors of this teach-in, um, JVP South Florida, DSA's Palestine Working Group, the Dream Defenders, Adela Justice Project, Palestine Legal, and JVP New Orleans. And a special thanks to the host of this broadcast, Haymarket Books. Now it's my pleasure to introduce some incredibly sharp and dedicated comrades that I am honored to be in the struggle with. Niall Fort is a minister, activist, and scholar. He supports Black and multiracial social movements through progressive scholarship, grassroots organizing, and faith-based activism. Niall is currently a PhD candidate in religion and African-American studies at Princeton University. Sandra Tamari is a Palestinian organizer based in St. Louis, Missouri, and is director of the Adela Justice Project, a Palestinian advocacy organization based in the U.S. that is committed to working towards collective liberation. Derricka Purnell is a human rights lawyer, writer, and organizer. She works to end police and prison violence by providing legal assistance, research, and trainings to community-based organizations through an abolitionist framework. Derricka is currently a columnist at The Guardian and Deputy Director of Spirit of Justice Center at Union Theological Seminary. Renda Wahbi is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Harvard University. She formerly worked in Ramallah for Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, a legal organization that provides support for Palestinian prisoners. Renda also sits on the board for the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Thank you all again for joining us, and we're going to kick it off by hearing from each of the panelists briefly on what brings them to the movements of prison abolition and internationalist solidarity. Okay, um, I'll start. So I was actually politicized by a political prisoner by the name of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, I was a first semester seminarian and my professor actually was organizing to release Mumia for decades alongside the international movement. And he had Mumia call into our class 
and Mumia was still on death row at the time, he basically gave like a 10 minute speech. Um, and he was just talking about oppression, but really was emphasizing freedom struggle. And, you know, I, I didn't really know about any of this stuff. I knew I was black. I knew stuff was messed up for black people. I knew there were prisons. I knew I didn't like police. I didn't make all those connections. And so that really sparked something in me. I remember leaving the class and just feeling like my life had changed and I'm not being romantic. I ended up going to my first protest a couple of weeks later and it was history ever since. I started reading everything I can, telling all my friends about Mumia and uh, I'm still luckily in conversation with him and um, just learned so much. I ended up going to the Ferguson, um, Ferguson after graduating from seminary and cut my teeth there. And it was in Ferguson that I was tear gassed alongside Derricka Purnell, who's also on the panel. And I learned how to deal with tear gas from Palestinian activists on Twitter. So Derek and I ran to the local gas station once we um, heard the, the roll call that they were going to tear gas folks. We went to go get some milk. By the time we got back to the protest, um, the milk that we were going to use on other people, we had to use on ourselves. Um, and then I ended up going to Palestine with the Dream Defenders on a delegation. And I'll stop there. So I'm glad to be here. Hey, everyone. Um, Zaina, thanks for uh, organizing. Thanks to all the organizers. And it's good. It's really good to be on this panel with so many um, people that I've admired for so long. Um, my name is Sandra Tamari. Um, I'm a U.S.-born Palestinian, uh, the daughter of, of uh, a refugee father, uh, a mother who is Palestinian, whose family came over in the 1930s to the U.S. Um, my political education happened in Palestine. Um, when I was in university, I made my first visit uh, to Palestine, and I'm older than most of the people on this uh, webinar. Um, it was the first intifada, uh, the Palestinian uprising that was happening. And that's where I received um, so many lessons in organizing. I saw beautiful resistance, political unity, uh, women's leadership, um, deep, deep mutual aid um, to keep people afloat during that um, terrible time of incursions. I was living in Ramallah, um, read, you know, saw tear gas on, on, on the regular, uh, saw people being shot and ended up going back soon after um, to work for uh, the precursor of Ademir that Renda will talk about, um, the Mandela Institute, who's a prisoner support group. Um, and when I, in my first days of being at the Mandela Institute, um, there was a death in detention, a Palestinian political prisoner who died uh, 23 years old, had been in detention uh, for only three days. Um, the Israelis claimed that he had a heart attack. Um, he had no, um, no history of, of heart issues, no health issues at all. Um, and yeah, as a young 21-year-old uh, looking at autopsy reports, um, and looking at photos of his tortured body um, has never left me. Um, when when Michael Brown was assassinated, um, I live you know 15 miles away from Ferguson. Um, I felt like I was transported back to the that, that time um, at the late 80s, and it broke my heart and it renewed my energy um, and my commitment to um, making sure that everybody is free. I can go next. Uh, Sandra, I had no idea that you worked at the Mandela. Um, my name is Renda. Um, 
I would say I was also born in the U.S. in California. Um, my parents immigrated to the U.S. Um, separately, but I believe my mother came here to give her children a better life. She lived under occupation in Birzit, but uh, she always kept us close and connected to Palestine. She would take us um, every summer when we were young. We would spend our entire summers at my grandmother's house in the village. And um, I forged a friendship with our neighbor, Omar. Um, and as we grew up, um, I went to UCLA and I started getting involved in the social justice activism there. We started as Students for Justice in Palestine. We were doing a lot of awareness raising and he was doing the same at Birzeit University. Um, and he ended up getting arrested by the Israeli military. He was, uh, he was put under administrative detention, meaning that he was detained without charge or trial. Uh, his extent, uh, detention kept getting extended. And it was really through that that I started to see how deep Israeli occupation was. And my eyes started opening to what was happening when we were going back home. Why was it that we were crossing through Jordan? Why was it that we were stopping at checkpoints that we couldn't go to parts of Palestine with our other cousins that had U.S. passports? And that really opened my eyes and uh, gave me a sense of responsibility to continue that struggle through university to move back to Palestine to work um, at Ad-Damir, which is a, um, an organization that provides free legal aid to Palestinian political prisoners. And I think like all of us on this panel, once we are exposed, we feel like we have a responsibility and this becomes a lifelong pursuit. Um, I can go next. So my name is Derica Purnell. Um, I'm originally from St. Louis, born and raised. I didn't realize that you were also there, Sandra. So we have to talk about Chinese food and emos pizza at some point um, at another time, maybe. But, you know, I was on my way to law school when Darren Wilson murdered Michael Brown on Canfield Drive um, in Ferguson, which is about I don't know, five minutes from where my furniture was being held at a public storage. So here I am you know, on my way to law school thinking that I was about to be an education lawyer and this movement around police violence completely politicized me. I would say for most of my life, when I would hear about police incidents in a way that caused national conversation, they felt anomalous, right? So when I first heard about Sean Bell in 2006, I was 16, 15, I was in high school. And I just thought it was a tragic situation. That, oh no, this black man who was waiting to wed his bride the next day is sitting outside of a club and his car is riddled with bullets. And so I just remember writing a Facebook note about it because of status at that time, there were like limitations. And so if you really had something you needed to say, you will write a Facebook note. And so I wrote my first note about Sean Bell and again, didn't think, that it was a phenomenon that was a, 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 you know, violence from police seemed like during personal encounters, but the idea that the police were killing people at the rates that they were killing people, I just had no idea. Um, and then in 2011, I had a fellowship at Berkeley and that was the first time I heard about Oscar Grant in a way that I can recall. And the students there was just, you know, they'd been protesting, there was tear gas and there was, you know, this conversation around Occupy was like picking up all these movements that were happening all around me. Just felt, um, 
I mean, felt exciting, but also felt like, okay, like there's these social movements happening, but I'm like on this path to become an educational lawyer. And then 2012, you have George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin in Florida. And it was the first time that I felt like I had a responsibility to go into the streets over a, over a murder. And I remember watching Dream Defenders conduct sit-ins. I remember their, I had this image of their backs to the camera as their heads sat in front of the police department doors in Florida, demanding for George Zimmerman to be arrested. And I remember being so inspired and so moved by all the activism that was happening in Florida. And then with ultimately became a national movement for hoodies and Skittles and iced tea to get George Zimmerman arrested. And I was just like, wow, I want to do something here. I was in Kansas City at the time, and I was just blown away by the level of response that people decided to come out and say, this is racist and we won't tolerate it. Um, so that's 2012, 2013, Michael Dunn murders Jordan Davis in Florida. So at this point, I'm just like, what is going on with Florida? Stand your ground, Castle Doctrine. He killed Jordan Davis, went home and ordered a pizza. So this was a callous nature. It felt like this is another Trayvon Martin, right? 2014, what happens? Darren Wilson murders Michael Brown in Ferguson. And this point is literally in like in St. Louis, the place I have most familiarity with. And at that point, you know, watching all of the uprisings happen, it was again okay, Derricka, what's going on with this police violence stuff? What's going on with this prison violence stuff? And spent the next three years doing lots of student organizing um, around police and prisons and the movement for Black lives. Niall stole a part of my story that I wanted to share, which is I came to know about the Palestinian struggle, just not through a historical context, but through a political context when we were being tear gassed in Ferguson because of all of the messages that people abroad were tweeting to teach us to help us protect ourselves and how to flush our eyes. But it wasn't until I started traveling and realizing that the organizers that were meeting in other countries had a deep analysis and a deep commitment to Palestinian solidarity that felt foreign to me. I was just like, wait, so what's happening? How long is this happening? How do you already know, you know about, this, about this movement? How can people be plugged in? So I am still learning so much about you know, what it means to be in solidarity with the resistance to Palestinian oppression. And I'm really excited to learn more tonight. Thank you all so much for those moving and vulnerable introductions. I'm so excited and really looking forward to digging into this conversation with you all. Um, uh, and I am now going to actually pass it to Niall. Um, uh, going to give us a little bit more grounding and framing for the rest of the conversation. Oh, we, we might have lost Niall. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, well, hopefully he'll be able to join back soon. Was really excited to hear his, um, his comments. Um, well, in the meantime, I feel like we kind of were already getting started. Um, Am I here? Oh, yay. Okay, great. We see you again now. We lost you for a second. <laughs> I was right, getting pumped up. Um, okay, so I'll try to get going. I'm a Baptist preacher, y'all. So I do need a little call and response. I can't see any of your faces, but I'm just going to trust that you're stopping your feet clapping your hands, you're telling me to make it plain. All right, all right. So um, I wrote some remarks because I wanted to stay within the time that I was allotted. Um, and like Derek said, I'm also really excited to learn with you all, not just the people on the panel, 
but when we open up for Q&A, um, the conversation we're going to end up having. So um, here we are witnessing the largest protests in American history in the face of the deadliest pandemic in over a century. Uh, and it really shouldn't be surprising that people are rising up as empires are being, being brought to their knees under the weight of their own contradictions and the gravity of a global movement that places people over profit. Resistance has always accompanied a repression. In fact, as the late Cedric Robinson teaches us, repression is a response to revolutionary ideas and struggle, not the other way around. It's a fact inscribed into the history of social movements. The invention of police in the U.S. responded to the anxieties surrounding slave rebellions and the creation of maroon communities throughout the Americas. The Ku Klux Klan and its lynching campaign was a response to the radical experiment and multiracial democracy Du Bois called Black Reconstruction. The Cold War and the FBI's counterintelligence program was a violent crackdown on the bubbling up of communists and anti-imperialists and radical feminists and Puerto Rican nationalists and basically anyone who conceived of freedom beyond the borders of the nation state. The expansion and acceleration of the prison system emerged in the wake of explosions in Newark, New Jersey and Detroit, Michigan and Watts and hundreds of cities across the country. And police violence today is at least in part a response to the instability of the ideas of private property and the persistence of social inequality. So racial capitalist colonial regimes, um, by which I just mean those fraudulent economies built on the theft of land, the murder of life, and the exploitation of labor, uh, I think it's important to remember that they're not totalizing and they're not natural. They were invented in a particular point in time under a particular set of material conditions by a particular arrangement of political forces. And so as long as they were made, they can be unmade and they can be remade. Um, so I don't want to spend much time reiterating what many of us probably already know um, and what the other panelists can articulate much better than I can. The facts are not hard to find. Checkpoints and home demolitions and land theft and the apartheid wall and the imprisonment of protesters and the uprooting of nearly 100, 1 million olive trees. Uh, and the fact that 40 percent of Palestinian men are incarcerated. The fact that Israel is the only nation in the world that tries children in military court. All those facts are inseparable from stop and frisk, from home evictions throughout New York City, from the tanks and tear gas in Ferguson and Baltimore and Minneapolis and ICE detention centers and the wall separating the U.S. from Mexico. And of course, the $10 million a day that the American government gives to Israel to oppress Palestinian communities and to maintain global dominance. So these things are important to know, and you're going to hear much more about them throughout the conversation. But I also want to emphasize why those things are important because they inform our resistance. The facts of our oppression are not the heartbeat of our struggle. The facts of our oppression are not the heartbeat of our struggle. Love, courage, imagination, solidarity, the music of the movement, these are the things that make us come alive in the face of deathly conditions. So yesterday I reread Angela Davis's uh, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And if you haven't read it, highly recommend it. 
And the book opens up with three questions I want to pose as a way to ground our conversation. Number one, what can we do? Number two, how can we do it? And number three, with whom? So soon, as I said, we're going to hear from a remarkable group of activists and thinkers and scholars that I admire deeply. Um, But I already told you I'm a Baptist preacher. So in the traditional black church style, I'm going to give you two points. I'm supposed to give three, but I'm going to give two because I'm going to try to keep it in the time period. So one, the world we want to make, at least the world I want to make, is already in the making. It's already in the making. Liberation is not about creating something from nothing. It's about improvising and remixing the best of what has been left behind. All those precious things buried in the ruins created by the vicious legacies of slavery and colonialism and racial capitalism. And I believe we see that today. We see it with mutual aid societies. We see it with the new abolitionist movement against police emerging from the abolitionist movements against slavery. We see it with the BDS movement emerging in the wake of boycotts against South African apartheid. We see it with the 2014 We Charge Genocide campaign following in the tradition of the 1951 We Charge Genocide campaign. And so I just want to situate us in this long tradition of struggle. Um, And then the second point I want to make before I stop, I believe that the value of social movements is not only uh, found in the possibilities of transforming society, but in the commitment to transform ourselves. Uh, Frantz Fanon wrote about this in The Wretched of the Earth. Um, He talks about how the aim of decolonization was not only the construction of a new society, but the invention of a new type of human being and a new type of way of living together. And that means quality schools that teach students not to compete on the global market, but to gain the tools to transform their communities. That means universal health care so grandma can cherish her last moments at home with the people that she helped make possible. That means work that makes our dreams come true, not Jeff Bezos and not G4S. That means abolishing prison so my nephew can come home where he's loved and where he belongs. That means ending the occupation so families can visit the graves of their loved ones without being harassed at checkpoints and children can play beneath the shade of olive trees. I recognize that this is a lot. It's a whole lot. Um, But I know when I'm overwhelmed, I'm reminded of what James Baldwin told his nephew. In 1963, he wrote in a little essay called The Fire Next Time. He told his nephew, I know what I'm telling you is impossible. But in our times, as in every time, the impossible is the least that one can demand. That's all I got. Thank you so much for that good word, Niall. That got me pumped up. (laughs) Thank you for grounding us in love, courage, and solidarity already in the making. Love that phrasing. And so now we are going to turn it to our brilliant panelists. Um, And some of y'all kind of already started touching on this question, but the first question we have prepared is how have people's struggles against settler colonialism in the U.S. and Palestine helped shape your understanding of fighting for a world free from policing and prisons? Thanks so much, Zaina. Niall, you you are you just embody uh, exactly what I want to talk about with your um, beautiful message. Um, what 
what shapes my understanding of fighting for a world free from policing and prisons is these visceral moments, right? When I get goosebumps, when um, it's difficult for me to um, stop shaking from the emotions, um, it's it's deep love that you feel in your bones. Um, I, you know, I described a little bit of what I felt in the summer of 2014 um, and what happened here in Ferguson at that moment when um, Gaza was under military bombardment and over 2,000 people had been uh, killed by Israel um, with nowhere to go, bombs falling from the sky and people, um, you know, leaflets being dropped on neighborhoods uh, by Israel and people being told your neighborhood is going to be bombed and having nowhere to flee because Gaza is, you know, a prison. Um, it was then, you know, looking at my, you know, on that morning of August 9th, looking at my Twitter and seeing, you know, these reports of a man, um, a, a boy, a young man being, you know, that was just on, on the street bleeding out and, and people saying his mother is, is yelling to try to get to him. Um, and even before we knew his name, um, before we knew Michael Brown's name, there were already messages of dehumanization coming um, fast and quick. You know, he he was a looter. He was a thug. He tried to attack the police officer. All of these lies were, were, were coming. And immediately I, 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 I went to the way that Israel had and the U.S. had painted Palestinian children as being responsible too for their own deaths. What were they doing in that, you know, supposed, you know, that UNRWA school that was, you know, uh, in their in their words, a depot for, you know, weapons, whatever. You know, there was always an excuse, right, for people uh, dying. Um, so anyway, my my motivation is this these connections and this organic uh, solidarity that gets built, right, from pain and shared struggle. And my understanding of Palestine has deepened and um, become more nuanced and more complete because of Black struggle. Um, these last six years have been a period of, of deep growth for me. Um, and I think that the, I hear, you know, from Niall and Derricka that 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 is, you know, um, reflected back. And just a couple of examples of how I've seen um, this kind of conversation happen between Palestinians and, and black um, organizers who begin to look at, at one another in a, in a new way. Um, one uh, black colleague who, from Atlanta who went on a delegation to Palestine um, a few years ago said he was lying uh, in a, on a cot uh, in um, a village. He was being hosted by a, a Palestinian family and he was just like, so, you know, loved on by them, so much hospitality. And they were telling stories of, you know, military occupation and what they had been going through, tear gas, skunk spray, you know, you name it, kids being snatched from the homes in the middle of the night. And, you know, this this young man said, you know, I, I was just listening and I was like, they don't deserve this. They don't deserve this. And then he said, then it dawned on me, I don't deserve this either. It was it was that that lens of Palestine that helped him overcome some of his internalized um, racism. Um, that it wasn't you know absent black fathers or a lack of a work ethic 
that was the cause of uh, the, the plight of, of black people in the U.S. It was oppression. And it was it was Palestine that gave him that. And then on the reverse side, I, I will say on the one year anniversary of Michael Brown's death, we hosted here in St. Louis um, a Palestinian father, uh, Siam Nawada, who lost his son, uh, Nadim, um, in 2014 on Nakwa Day on May 15th. Um, uh, Nadim, uh, 17 years old, was walking um, back from a a, a demonstration at Ofer Prison, one of the many uh, military prisons in the West Bank. Um, he was shot in the back. Um, and this this murder was caught on closed circuit TV um, by a, a store owner. And the father, CM, um, came to the U.S. looking for answers. He became a video forensics expert. He was looking for the killer of his son. He was playing this video over and over again. And when he was staying um, with us, we we made a, a point of having him meet um, families um, here in St. Louis that had all also been, um, yeah, their sons had been killed by the state. Uh, he, you know, CM was not hearing us. He was just very, very focused on his own issue. Um, but after three days of um, of meeting families and being impacted by the stories he was hearing, um, he he began to like have this sense of comfort that was coming from you know knowing that he wasn't alone in the world. And so I just think that you know when we think about with whom you know the question you ask that you ask the three questions. I mean I know. I'm not sure that I know what we can do. I think that that's a big question. That's the biggest one. How we do it is with great love, um, and and with whom is um, with with these people with people who are are sharing our oppression and people that share our vision for a better world. Thank you so much for that, Sandra. Um, would anyone else like to offer some thoughts in response to that first question? Seems like you said it all, Sandra. Thank you so much for that. Um, <laughs> so the second question I'm really excited to ask you all about, um, and I really want to trouble us around it actually. Um, so just from my vantage point, at least it seems like many of the conversations around defunding the police and decarceration are often separated from conversations around what is required to combat and defeat U.S. imperialism. Can, um, can you all talk about the connections between the prison industrial complex, um, and the internationalist struggle to defeat imperialism. Okay, I will start. Um, yeah, so, so abolition is not just about the absence of police and prisons, right? It's, it's not just about telling the 18,000 law enforcement agencies to just close tomorrow the, you know, over 3,000 jails, over almost 2,000 prisons. It's not just about closing those institutions and shrinking the size and scope of police, even though that is a very, very, very important feature. All right, so abolition is also about abolishing and ending the institutions that police and prisons and militarism seek to protect, right? It's about abolishing racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, 
as well as capitalism, colonialism, imperialism. So the project of abolition is, at least the the prison industrial complex, is actually a derivative of the abolition of the military industrial complex. So Mike Davis, when he's theorizing about the prison industrial complex, he uses that language to describe how the prisons, particularly in California, had become such a, a groundswell, became such a place where um, he used the language of seduction. I really like that. He says prisons have started to seduce legislatures and it seduced people into an economy that was sustainable by the suffering and caging of, you know, poor people in the state. And so this prison industrial um, complex framework comes out of the military industrial complex. And so before we can think about the connections between, you know, abolition and the prison industrial complex, we can first make those connections really bright. So for example, in Ferguson and in police departments all across the country, this didn't start with Ferguson. We see the militarization of police. And so it's it's not as if, you know, in 2014, these police departments all of a sudden got tanks and those tanks were brought out to suppress black resistance. Like these tanks are also used in very everyday mundane SWAT raids, which is unfortunate. But the reason why these police departments even have, you know, military equipment is because there are military industrial complex contractors who, you know, pursue the Pentagon and seduce them. And they say, hey, you know, we can continue to supply you with military equipment and and weapons and keep you on fresh stock and the gently use, you know, it's like the goodwill for the, the military. You can go and get all this nice gently used equipment for the discount. You can donate it to your local police departments and even school districts. There are even school districts with, you know, police department um, with uh, militarized police department gear, right? And so you have the military, in, military industrial complex, you know, engaging with the federal government, which engages with local police departments that cycles it, you know, because if it's not going to local police departments, the other place is just going to go is to other places abroad, which is why I often tell people it's not enough that we simply return the the equipment, the tanks, the the rifles, the helicopters, the you know the SWAT gear. It's not enough that we return it back to the federal government because we don't want those tools to then just go abroad and be used to suppress some other country, some other people, some other oppressed group because now they have new cool toys to play with. Right? We need these um, equipment, these tanks to be to be destroyed to be destroyed. So the links, you know, have been made bright from the inception of the conversation around the military industrial complex. And then there's a longer abolitionist and a longer internationalist struggle. I mean, as long as there have been black people resisting oppression in the United States, it has been informed by internationalist action of the parts of the world. So we have people, you know, who were enslaved, being inspired by uprisings in Martinique and Guadeloupe and Haiti, you know, that informs the resistance on the plantations in the South and then in other parts of the up South and then the North, like the conversation spread, you know, when 
black movements are, you know, gaining up speed, gaining up traction, usually the first people who are in solidarity with them are colonized people in other parts of the world. So there's a long struggle, uh, a long history, rather, and a long record of internationalist resistance, you know, between, you know, black people who are suffering here and people who are abroad. You know, we know that from Paul Robeson and Islanda, and we charged genocide in the 1950s through SNCC, you know, choosing to stand on the side of Palestinians, and which I've heard people say, which caused actually the downfall and the undermining of SNCC as a civil rights organization, because they took a radical stance to support Palestine. We see in the opposition to Vietnam War, you know, to loosely quote Muhammad Ali, Viet Cong did nothing to me. You know, why, why am I being sent abroad to go fight, you know, in Vietnam in opposition? You know, we see it with calls to free South Africa. And then in 2015 to 16, solidarity across students all over the world who are behind Feast Must Fall and Wits and Roads Must Fall, you know, at Wits and at University of Cape Town. So there's a long history of international solidarity. And what's so beautiful about the abolitionist struggle is that it's often in conversation with moments and movements to decolonize spaces, to reclaim land, to repair harm. And it's so important that those conversations continue to be in solidarity and continue to happen. It's because sometimes, depending on like the news media or depending on like which scholars become prominent of a particular land, you would think that those connections are not being made. Right. You would think that, you know, this conversation is often lacking an internationalist or an imperialist or a decolonial perspective. But actually, in our tradition, it is there and it is rich. You know, we borrow from that tradition. So we have recharged genocide in 1951. And then you see it again in Chicago as an abolitionist claim against police violence in 2015 by several organizations who are working to resist police violence. So I think it's just so beautiful that history it excites me so, so much. And like I said in my opening comments, it wasn't until I started traveling more throughout the world that I got to see that in action today. You know, when the movement for Black Lives became under severe scrutiny for choosing to stand you know, on the side of Palestinians who were resisting oppression, it was because there had already been a long history of you know, Black people standing in solidarity with folks who were oppressed in Palestine. So I think that history needs to be told more. I think that that history is so, so important, obviously. But I think that, you know, let's figure out how to do that. And rather than just assume that, you know, it does not exist. I would like to respond to that and just say, I totally agree with you that we really should be uplifting the histories um, from the 1960s and into the present of the ways that we share solidarity. And sometimes it's even so much more um, tangible, like, for example, talking to the families of prisoners in Palestine and knowing what they experience about being blocked from seeing their family members and all the difficulties they face and the same experiences happening here. There's a lot of material ways that policing happens on the global level that we should be tackling on a global level through joint struggle. Um, one of those ways is through the police exchanges between the police forces in the US and, Palestine and Israel. Um, 
in which like thousands of um, American cops have gone back to Israel and learned various tactics of surveillance. Um, and this connection is just showing how um, these police tactics used here are becoming more militarized and how they are uh, teaching each other various ways of how to expand surveillance technologies for infiltrating social justice movements, which have moved from, um, you know, Cointel Pro to um, online mechanisms now um, through the deep fakes and so forth. Um, they're infiltrating of black, indigenous, undocumented communities of color. They teach each other how to racially profile, crowd suppression. There's a host of different tactics that are being used and exchanged globally. And I just want to also focus a little bit on the funding to think about how can we actually start to tackle this as a joint struggle. Israel, we know, is the largest recipient of U.S. military aid and economic funds. This goes back decades. Um, in just most recently, Trump's 2020 budget included $3.3 billion of, and I'm quoting from the report, foreign military financing grant assistance to bolster Israel's capacity to defend itself against threats in the region and maintain its qualitative military edge. And, Israel, and the U.S. has a stake in this quote unquote, qualitative military edge, because a lot of the products that are used and the weapons that are used against Palestinians are then manufactured as field tested and then um, and, and then dispersed globally. And I really want to focus specifically um, on uh, not only is this a capitalist mechanism that these countries are entrenching each other in this neoliberal way, but that um, but that uh, there's a specific company, Combined Systems, and I want to bring this up um, right now because on Monday there was an action in Pennsylvania against Combined Systems. And Combined Systems is a weapon company based in Pennsylvania, and they manufacture the tear gas that's used in the United States and also in Palestine. And I actually remember I was living in Palestine in 2014 and seeing people post photos of those tear gas canisters. We had like a box of tear gas canisters in our office, and they were the same exact one. So we really like felt that solidarity. Um, and these um, and these tear gas canisters have and tear gas from combined uh, systems has been used against Palestinians for decades. Um, in 2019, Basim Abu Rahmeh from Berlin was killed by a CTS gas canister. Mustafa Tamimi was also killed in 2011 by a tear gas canister. And these weapons are now also sold in Egypt, Tunisia, Chile, Bolivia, Guatemala, Germany, Netherlands, India, Hong Kong, Argentina, Cameroon, Sierra Leone, the list goes on and on. So th this company is actually deploying um, uh, weapons to miller, 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 militarize, excuse me, um, global police forces globally. And so these five activists this past Monday from the War Resisters League were arrested at the headquarters to block a shipment of weapons um, because they made this connection of um, this uh, global police force. And now they're facing trumped up charges and potential imprisonment for up to 10 years. And I think highlighting 
their their action is crucial to show that we have to fight uh, policing on, and militarization on a global level. Not only do we have to defund the police, but we have to defund the corporations that give police their weapons. We have to target also the private policing systems, such as G4S, which is one of the largest security companies that provides surveillance equipment for Israeli checkpoints and prisons, but also is used in juvenile detention centers in the U.S., immigration centers in the U.K. So the connections are so real and tangible, and it feels like our work is really cut out for us. Thanks so much for that, y'all. Um, you know, when you were talking, Derica, on, and thank you for that historicizing, um, and also, Niall, what you said about, you know, state repression response to revolutionary activity, I was respond, um, I was reminded, um, actually, of an excerpt from, you know, Ruthie Gilmore's Golden Gulag, um, where she says, the more militant anti-capitalism and international solidarity became everyday features of U.S. anti-racist activism, the more vehemently the state responded by, as Alan Feldman puts it, individualizing disorder into singular instances of criminality. Um, so it's just, it's so important to understand those connections between, you know, our movements um, in international solidarity, our movements to free our people from cages. Um, so thank you for that. Does anyone else want to share any thoughts on that connection um, between um, abolishing the PIC um, and, and defeating U.S. imperialism? Um, if I may, I just... I'm thinking about G4S, um, you know, largest security company. I think it's the third largest private employer, employer after Walmart um, and another company. I was at a, I was at my barber shop. It's like maybe a year ago, and I had just learned about G4S a little over a year ago. I, said, I just learned about G4S, and I overheard um, one of the brothers in the chair talking about his new job. And I, through the conversation of listening, I realized that his new job was for G4S. So I go back home and I'm starting to like do more research. And it really had me thinking about how the economy is predicated on death and devastation, um, but it also compels people who are in destitute situations to go get jobs where they gotta carry guns, where they gotta surveil their cousins, but they got to go brutalize people. I mean, so the whole sort of concept and logic of war, the military is also super privatized. And I think that one of the things that um, is exciting is thinking about how abolition also provides us other ways of employment, um, other ways of thinking about work. You know, Marx is thinking about work not as this kind of alienated labor where we make someone else's dreams come true, but work that sort of produces the kind of society where we can all live and thrive. So, so long as we have economies that are built on companies like G4S, which also, by the way, is in our juvenile detention centers, privatized juvenile detention centers. They work with ICE at the border. Um, in Israel, they're you know setting up surveillance systems. They're maintaining um, uh, service apparatuses, security apparatuses in the West Bank. They're sort of surveilling political prisoners. So there's this connection, but I also think there's this sort of economic, almost a jobs question, this employment question, and how do we think about um, providing alternative opportunities uh, for people like the brother who was in a barbershop, who's not trying to surveil his cousin, who's not trying to be in a juvenile detention center. He wants to go to college. 
He wants to have an opportunity to go home and, you know, have some good food to eat. He wants to enjoy his life and not have to live under certain conditions. I, I bet if we gave him another opportunity that that he would take that. So just wanted to throw that on the table as well. Yeah. Thanks for that. Now, that was actually a perfect segue into the next question. Thank you for, you know, invoking these questions around surplus labor, these questions around social conditions um, that are being mediated, right, by prisons and policing. Um, And so a framing we often hear from our comrades in Palestine is to understand all prisoners held captive in Israeli military courts as political prisoners. Um, So how do you all see this framing comparing or contrasting with how we hear organizers in the U.S. refer to people inside of prisons and jails and their struggles for emancipation? I think um, the other panelists, we've talked a lot about how we see policing as used to control and criminalize populations. And so I think, uh, and that similarly, for in Israel, policing is designed to squash Palestinian resistance to the expansion and control of the Israeli settler colonial state. So just as we see policing as political, we see prisoners as political. And I just want to give some background on the system of how that's uh, come to be developed, which is that Israel controls the Palestinian population by using military law. And there's over 1,600 military orders and codes that control Palestinian life and movement, such as the criminalization of membership in political parties or attending demonstrations, or even more recently, writing Facebook posts about the occupation. Um, And And oftentimes, Palestinians are even detained under administrative detention, which means that they're held under secret information without the charge or the ability to stand trial, like my friend Omar that I mentioned earlier. And this is often used against Palestinians who are organizers or political leaders who are active, and they just are trying directly to cripple and intimidate movements by arresting the leaders or those that are most vocal. And um, Mahmoud Nawaja, who is the coordinator for the BDS campaign in Palestine, was arrested at the end of July, and he endured a very cruel interrogation for 19 days, during which he was tied to a chair for 16 continuous hours in a stress position, and eventually released without charge a few days ago. And this was clearly a tactic to intimidate those who work on BDS in Palestine and also globally. It goes hand in hand with state legislation in the U.S. that criminalizes BDS. There's over two dozen states that have ratified legislation that criminalizes those who boycott Israeli companies and goods and legislation that has been introduced at a federal level. And so this condemnation of the BDS movement itself shows how there is this global nature of policing. And it's a shared goal and tactic by Israel and the U.S. to repress liberation movements, both here and there. Um, And there's also another case that I wanted to talk about, which is about a female graduate student, um, Tasneem Al-Qadi. She's uh, doing her master's degree. She's also a blogger and a human rights worker. And she's been under interrogation since August 4th. And this entire time has been denied um, uh, being able to see her lawyer. And Adamir has petitioned five times in the last 16 days and taken it to the Supreme Court and still been denied from being able to see her. Uh, these are the ways that Israel tries to intimidate Palestinians by trying to physically cut off uh, Palestinians and fragment the population through interrogation, through torture mechanisms, and using the military courts as a way to do that. Um, and uh, And that's all to say that we say all Palestinians are political 
political because these tactics of arrest, detention, and interrogation are essential and integral to Israel to continue to control Palestinian land and to keep Palestinians from realizing freedom or fighting from freedom. And we don't necessarily use the word abolition in Palestine, but Palestinian resistance is rooted in abolition. Our fight is rooted in dismantling Israeli settler colonialism, not reforming it. It's about dismantling the discriminatory and racist policies we live under and creating a a radically different world that is the one presented to us by the Israeli government and the Palestinian leadership. And um, we've spoken briefly about the origins of policing in the U.S., which are founded on slave patrols, the Black Codes, Jim Crow, and now the prison industrial complex. And it's not different from the goals of Israel either. Um, so I think what we see and we share in our movements and also what is exciting is that we see and have a vision that is far brighter and wider than what our leaderships espouse. The Palestinian Authority has now for over 30 years been going into political negotiations that are further going to fragment Palestinian land. And they keep telling Palestinians, this is all we can get. This is all we can deserve. And we shouldn't demand the right of return to our historic homes in Palestine. Um, and so what is exciting about abolition is the ability to see that vision and to dismantle what has been presented to us as what is possible. And I think we see that also here in the U.S., you know, with the way the Democratic Party nominations are going, we know that they have completely rejected what people are demanding on the streets. And by calling for abolition, I think this this year um, it has been kind of like a threshold moment to see that the demands that seemed impossible are now center stage. And that has been deeply motivating and inspiring for me and has also pushed me in my own work on political prisoners in Palestine to push out of the boundaries that have been created for us of what is possible and to demand for the dismantlement of the military courts. Um, so I think uh, that's, again, I just want to say that we do have this joint struggle when we say all prisoners are political. We're not just talking about Palestine. We're talking about everywhere, even though our systems may seem somewhat different. They're rooted in the same processes of control. And working together, we can actually abolish and dismantle these systems and build in place the society we want to see. I can jump in. Renda, I really appreciate that analysis. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, Palestinian resistance, yes, has always been an abolitionist enterprise. And that's not the word <laughs> that we would use, but you know, in a in a place living under um, an Israeli regime where it's very clear that the state um, does not want you, uh, there's no like pretense that you can appeal to some higher power, right, for uh, re redress. Um, in the U.S., where it's a you know it's a settler colonial regime uh, built on slavery, but it's evolved a bit, right? We have uh, we have a constitution now that does <laughs> at least, you know, say that everyone is uh, is equal, even though we know that in practice that is not the case. Um, in Israel, we don't even have the word. Um, we have an Israeli preamble uh, basic law that was passed in July of 2018 um, that re reaffirms what Israel has already made a reality, that from the river to the sea, all of Palestine is exclusively for Jewish uh, nationhood, um, that they have control over all the land and that there is no space for 
Palestinians. Um, Palestinians are not mentioned in that law. Um, it is the we, the people of uh, of Israel. Um, and, you know, like the U.S. Constitution, uh, when it was drafted, there's a whole lot of people that are not included in the we. Um, so they're left out of that frame. So what, you know, what does it really mean when we're talking about equality? You know, so, you know, Palestinian um you know, struggle is not one for equality. It is for uh, decolonization because the state can't be reformed. There's no space for that. Um, there's no room for Palestinians. Um, and as Renda mentioned, you know, carceral systems inside Israel are not limited uh, to prisons or the military. Um, they're central, all you know, to the control of the of the unwanted population. Um, you know, and it's not limited to the West Bank or Gaza. I want to make that clear. You know, I mentioned Gaza, you know, being uh, trapped, uh, 1.8 million people penned into, you know, 360 square kilometers, um, a ghetto um, where people have been confined for 13 years. Um, we, you know, it's, you know, these carceral systems exist inside uh inside what we call, you know, what is known as Israel proper, uh, 1948 Palestine, where Palestinians who make up 20% of the citizenry um, are also subjected to uh, home demolitions, um, limitations on employment, uh, political repression, uh, surveillance. Um, and before 1967 checkpoints <laughs> and uh, and the same uh, all the all the things that we know about military occupation existed in 1948 Palestine before it was transferred to the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, this you know this repression is not limited to the borders of Palestine. It exists uh, it, it, it targets all Palestinians regardless of where they live. Um, the refugees denied uh, denied return to their lands. Um, and even, you know, diaspora baby like myself, you know, when I tried to go to uh, visit family in Palestine in, in 2012, denied entry um, be because I am a Palestinian. Um, didn't My U.S. passport did not matter. Um, it was simply my identity that uh, was forced me back. And anyone who identifies with Palestinians, you know, uh, you know, activists in the U.S., students who uphold BDS, um, who are working for Palestinian rights, are facing this repression. Um, so, you know, all to say that you know these, you know, the U.S. and Israel um, are mirror images of one another. They give each other meaning. Um, I'm sure it makes uh, Israel very scared <laughs> to see the black-led uprising in the U.S. because you know this is you know. This is, you know, it's it's very it's a very easy jump, right, from defunding police to defunding Israel. It's a very easy jump from, uh, you know, ending, you know, police systems in this in this state to ending, you know, our uh, our military involvement around the world. So, you know, it gives me a lot of hope, as Renda said, and um, just saying, you know, we we have to. Um, avoid, you know, kind of the reformist and liberal frames on Palestine. This, you know. This, there's a lot of chatter about one state versus two states. You know, nation states are not, you know, um, the solution. <laughs> they have never been. And, you know, we, you know, a lot of folks that are wringing their hands over uh, Israel's, you know, um, bad press and illiberalism, um, you know, they, they want to make it go away. Um, and they, they figure go, giving the vote to Palestinians might make that go away, just like people in this country thought that giving um, black folks the vote might 
make the problem go away. Um, but it's it's uh, it's distractions, and what we do need is decolonization. Thank you all so much again for your presence and contributions and grounded commitments. Um, the last question we'd prepared before we turn to a few questions from the audience is reflecting on the current political moment, escalation of authoritarian settler regimes, environmental degradation, austerity and state force. How do we link the struggles for abolition and self-determination from here to Palestine to a mass political project contesting for power? What are some of the biggest challenges to linking these struggles to a mass political project? And what are some of the greatest opportunities that you see? I want to hear what Niall has to say. <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, so I actually had a thought about the last question, if that's cool. And, you know, folks can maybe jump on and we can, um, you know, energize off each other's thoughts. So one thing, I don't want to get lost that, um, okay, so we, we refer to political prisoners in different kinds of ways. Um, and political prisoners refer to themselves in different kinds of ways. And I just want to put on the table to think of political prisoners, not just as sort of icons of revolutionary struggle, but as theorists of revolutionary struggle. You know, Mumia wrote like six, seven, eight books, and he has a lot to offer in how we think about these types of things. Asada Shakur, Angela Davis, um, Leonard Peltier, I'm thinking of even Dr. King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Now, thinking about political prisoners, one in this very expansive sense, um, there are protesters right now who are being arrested they're political prisoners who are in jail right now. They're political prisoners. Josh Williams, who uh, came out of Ferguson, eight years in prison, 18 years old, um, political prisoners. Josh Williams has a lot to say about his thoughts and dreams of what the world should be like. So one, just want to make sure that we're all committing ourselves, as I know many of us do, to the work of actually reading Antonio Gramsci, you know, um, who is offering so many theoretical tools. And I think their perspective of being in the belly of the beast really provides, there you go, um, a certain way of thinking about how to get free. And also connecting that to the struggles inside of prisons, the Attica Rebellion, thinking about prison strikes today, thinking about how those things things need to be on the table and how we talk about, um, not just talk about, but struggle with political prisoners. The other thing is, I think there's a distinction that's that's made oftentimes uh, in the U.S., and this sometimes happens from people on the left as well, the distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders. And so this doesn't directly speak to the question, but I do think that that dichotomy oftentimes stands in the way of a more radical analysis, by which I mean, number one, it doesn't take into consideration the broader violent systems and structures upon which all of our sort of lives sort of are grounded in. You know, the, the, the violence of capitalism, the violence of having to walk down your street and, you know, be feeling unsafe to go to school, the violence of not having enough money to feed your family, you know, the violence of your grandmother or your mother not having the type of resources to get the kind of medication they need. So it, it doesn't sort of take into account that, that stuff, which I think is really important. Um, and it also, I think, it disposes of people. 
And those of us, I think, who really believe in freedom, we cannot dispose of people, even those who have um, harmed people. You know, and so that's where abolition also becomes so important because it gives us other ways of thinking about how to keep each other safe, how to be safe in our communities, how to hold each other accountable. Um, and so I think that's really important. And the last thing I'll say is just this dope quotation that Baldwin wrote. I believe in it's either the um, no name in the street or it's in occupied territory. He says something like, I'm not saying that everybody in prison is innocent, but I'm saying that the law is guilty. And so Baldwin insists that we recognize the criminal nature of the so-called criminal justice system. And I think that will allow for us to have a different analysis and a different kind of uh, way of way of like organizing. Yeah, I was still sitting with the last question. I wasn't quite ready to share, but yet Niall, just to echo so many of those points. So for people who are in prison, I think the connection you were making between the violent and non-violent is probably also similar to the political prisoner versus non-political prisoner, right? And so Mumia gets to be a political prisoner, but what does it mean for someone who lives on a block who committed harm to be a political prisoner? And one reason why I would imagine why we would call people who are not actively political in a in a certain sense, or in a Mia sense, or in a Angela Davis sense, political, um, it's because they're not incarcerated for their beliefs. But what is true is that, like Niall just described, the conditions that set the stage for harm are political decisions, right? And depending on how much power you have, it can determine whether you go to prison or not. So today, for or yesterday, I guess the story broke that in Michigan, there's gonna be a $600 million settlement for the people who were, some of the people who were victims of the Flint water crisis. 12 people died, you know. So many children in that community were exposed to lead poisoning. And so there were initially criminal investigations, but those all of the charges have been dropped. And this is not an avid, this is not saying that they should not have been dropped, but all the charges of the people who are responsible for poisoning and killing people, those all those charges have been dropped after $30 million was spent on the prosecution to put them in prison. And then the prosecutors have just decided to like start from scratch. And there was a political shift, an administration shift. But these are political decisions. Because if I decide to poison someone by putting, you know, poison in their water, I'm probably going to go to prison, maybe, right? But if I hold some level of power and I'm responsible for, you know, the deaths of 12 people who suffer at the hands of my political decisions, then my charges will be dropped. It's the same way. So same reason for um, home break-ins. As an abolitionist, people often ask me, what do you tell people who are afraid that if we remove police and remove prisons, you know, what are we going to do if someone breaks into my home? And I try to say, well, the people who suffer home break-ins usually have incomes of about $7,500 a year, right? Seventy-five, And the, and the break-ins happen usually as a consequence of economic desperation. So these are political decisions around who gets resources, who gets jobs, who gets education, who gets to be economically desperate. But if a banking system decides to become economically desperate and creates a mortgage crisis and they get to steal entire homes from black people, from poor people, then there is no charging decisions to be made. It's instead, how do we bail those people out? So we bail out banks and the language is so ironic because we're bailing them from a non-carceral crisis. And while people in our hoods are struggling to come up with bail money, it's absurd. And so I definitely, there's deep resonance about seeing people 
who commit all types of harm as political prisoners, you know, because the conditions that set their, um, the, the stage for that harm are absolutely political. And the last thing I'll say really quickly, um, just thinking about um, Sandra's point about the evolution of the Constitution, because it has evolved, but not far. You know, the United States still has its own colonies. We have colonies right now. You know, when I went to go do some work in Puerto Rico and I was learning about the acts of austerity under PROMESA, and I learned that right now, you know, thanks to this specially appointed board, fiscal management um, board, that's actually interestingly modeled like the one that was in Flint, Michigan. And, you know, it's the connections. People, you know, oppressors are so unoriginal in how they, you know, oppress people. So under this fiscal management board, if you're a victim of police violence in Puerto Rico, you can't really sue the police for damages because this fiscal management board has decided that that pursuit is off the table because there is no money to pay victims of police violence. So that what we tend to fall back on on the mainland U.S., you know, around, well, if I if this cop isn't going to be prosecuted, at least I can sue. Well, that's just off the table for people who who live in colonial territories that the United States own. Right. And so it's so unfortunate that, you know, across all of these, you know, settler colonial situations, we see the same practice of oppression. But what gives me the most amount of hope is you've seen the same level of resistance. And so to answer the last question quickly, what I've been most encouraged by, why I think that, yes, we need more uh, for a mass political project is for people to continue to hit the streets, to make real time decisions in the streets, right? So you can stop deportations from happening right now in your community if you band together with other people and block a bus. If you say, no, you're not taking this person today, right? That's rescuing people from custody. That's abolitionist. You're not going to take a step back and wait for someone to be arrested, then to get them representation, then to get them bailed out, then to see them in court. People are doing abolition in the streets right now. They're setting up community care centers in New York and other places to make sure that people have food and medicine and hygiene needs, right? People are tailoring their demands in the middle of the street and saying, we want to defund the police. So there's so many opportunities for small de democracy and mass political pro um, participation. But what's so important is that we continue to encourage people to go into the streets and to resist the violence that they're seeing. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, Niall, thank you for also reminding us to, to think of political prisoners as theoreticians of their own emancipation. Um, it did remind me of, um, you know, in 2018, we had a national prisoner strike in the U.S. Um, political prisoners in Palestine actually wrote a letter of solidarity with that strike and invoked, um, you know, our, our dear comrade George Jackson um, in that letter of solidarity. So um, just, you know, it's available online if folks want to read that. But just especially during Black August, important to to be reminded of those stories. Um, anyone else want to kind of offer any insights into this question of, um, you know, connecting and linking these struggles to a mass political project and and talking about opportunities and obstacles? And I, I loved that example, Derricka. Thank you. Um, it's been so exhilarating to see the de-arrests happening and how militant and ready our people are for something else. Um, so yeah, anyone else want to kind of offer some thoughts on that last question? 
Yeah, I can jump in. I I really want to shout out people who have been lifting up Palestine um, in the U.S. Um, yeah, with you know, with a lot of cost, um, especially the movement for Black Lives and the policy platform, um, where they were just um, that all the attention was paid on uh, a few sentences about um, our struggle and making those connections and and. Um, and the rest of the platform <laughs> didn't get a lot of press, unfortunately. And it's a beautiful document. And I just, I, I you know, I can't um, stress enough how much that has moved um, internationalism forward. Just, you know, the, the whole idea of invest, divest, um, the whole section, how much it's, it's shaped the current conversation. And so shout out to them. Um, and also the Red Nation who um, have been putting out consistently um, principled um, statements about the, the fight for indigenous justice um, with an analysis of imperialism and, um, and a commitment to Palestinian liberation. And I think that it's, you know, these kinds of, um, you know, joint um, analyses that help us, you know, get to that mass movement that you're, you're speaking of, Zaina. Um, and I, I just want to stress, too, that, you know, for a lot of Palestinians, you know, the there was a tendency at the very beginning when George Floyd was murdered, there was a tendency to um, try to put, you know, the picture of George Floyd side by side with a Palestinian martyr and say it's the same. And and a lot of us who had been doing this work for some time really were trying to do some education to explain that, you know, it's not it's not our time that right now the focus really does need to be on black struggle. And that's not a detriment to Palestine that, you know, you know, the uprisings here um, in the U.S. are simply another front um, in, in the fight. And I think that as long as we're continuing to lift up the beautiful resistance that's happening wherever it's happening, um, I think that we can you know see ourselves in as part of a, a more choreographed, um, you know, uh, play perhaps. Um, and that I think will give us more hope rather than being in competition with one another, um, and seeking the limelight, but rather just upholding, right. Upholding, um, that resistance wherever it's happening. Thanks so much, um, for that, Sandra. Um, and so now we're going to take a couple of questions, um, from folks watching, um, uh, this first question comes from Morgan. Um, how do we decolonize minds who have been brainwashed to buy into the law and order, serve and protect thin blue line between order and chaos narrative surrounding policing and military action? I know we started off this call invoking Fenon and Sandra mentioned decolonization. So I thought this would be a good one um, to pass to y'all. So I, if I can go, I think it looks like a lot of different ways, depending on the context that you find yourself in. One thing that, and I'll maybe try to link it to the last question that was asked, Fred Moten um, talks about, he had this really dope conversation with Robin Kelly. And in that conversation, he said, you know, I think it's important to have what he called the proliferation of small scale gatherings. And I found that really powerful. And I found it especially powerful in a moment where we have a global pandemic, 
and how to like, how are those things in relationship to one another? So there's sometimes, and I, speaking for myself, I might know more about what's happening in Palestine or India than I do at City Hall right down the street from me. And so it's not about making a choice between the two. It's actually about how important it is to connect those two things. There's a way where we can sometimes move away from the local and the hyper-local. And that's what's exciting even about SJP chapters, because they're organizing right on their campuses. That's what's exciting about certain indigenous communities who are shutting down pipelines because they're protecting their land. They're protecting sort of these places that they call home. And so I think it, you know, in that sense, to go back to the decolonizing the mind, um, you know, start a study group with friends who are in your area, with your family members, you know, start reading Fanon, start reading other people who are talking about decolonization. And it's important, I think, for me to do it as collectively as possible. Um, you know, you can host things like this. In a pandemic, it's maybe difficult to meet up in person, but I think these types of things are important for how we can sort of think around these questions um, together, you know? But I also think that decolonization is about the reading, it's about the studying, but it's also about how we practice certain habits in our everyday lives. Um, and so Fred Moten also talks about walking lightly on the earth. So how do we treat the earth? How do we think about the way that we live our, our everyday lives as a form of decolonization? Um, and so I think it's a partially like kind of the things we're reading, who we're reading them with, but always trying to make sure that those are materializing in the way that we live our everyday lives, you know, with the people that we love. Yeah, I think something also that I think about for this, and I'm deeply embedded and indebted to the Harvard Prison Divestment Campaign, which I'm a part of, to my friends and colleagues there for creating spaces on our campus where we do do that type of reading and that type of thinking to think outside of um, that brainwashing on law and order, but to really think about what it means for us to advocate for people in cages and to people for people being isolated. And that's really heightened, particularly during the coronavirus. I feel like when we think about San Quentin and coronavirus just spreading like wildfire and families not having access to their loved ones inside to know if they're being protected or if they're being moved or if they're being isolated. Also in Palestine, we have a 16-year-old kid who was transferred and contracted coronavirus and put in an isolation um, in an isolation cage that had like no amenities or anything. So I think that's one way is to really like uplift the stories of people and to show that this is not a system that um, that is good for society or for good for us moving forward and really thinking about. Um, and what abolition really offers for me and for us as a whole is to really think about how to break out of that and how to create those spaces that we want to live in. And if really putting people in cages for extended periods of time or in solitary confinement is really going to help us get to that goal and to help us get to what we envision. And so that's really something that I've been learning on the local level through the prison divestment campaign, um, which also has like an action oriented side of trying to get the university to divest funds from all the companies that are uh, that work inside the prisons too. Um, I want to respond really quickly because I see like, a few people in the chat saying I understand you know why it's important to have an abolition framework for misdemeanor crimes or for you know 
small crimes and nonviolent crimes, but we absolutely need it for violent crimes. I think that I completely, completely understand that impulse. Like, what what are we going to do with the murderers and the rapists? And what's unfortunate is that, you know, I, the way that our criminal legal system is set up, it actually creates more murder and more sexual assault and doesn't actually protect victims who experience either of those forms of violence. So if people are killing people because they're homophobic, prisons and police cannot stop people from being homophobic. They can put people in a cage, but they doesn't get to the heart of the problem. So if we care about why people are killing people, if we care about you know intra-community violence or you know gender-based violence, we have to stop investing in systems that perpetuate gender-based violence and violence against people who are queer, violence against people who are immigrant, violence against people who are differently able. We have to stop investing in those systems that perpetuate that violence. And so we have to ask ourselves. Do we care about punishment or do we care about preserving lives? Because those those are not the same answers. We're not going to approach the problem with the same answers, right? And so I think it's so important that we decontextualize even what it means to be a victim of sexual assault. You know, people who are victims want lots of different answers, right? Some of them do want the person who harmed them to be punished. Some people want the relationship to be transformed. Lots of people don't call the police when they experience sexual violence because the police don't believe them, because their rape kit was sit in a in a stockpile of 30,000 for over several years, right? Because the police was sexually assault them. So we know that after excessive force, sexual misconduct is the second highest complaint against police departments. So when you are affirming, you know, the carceral state for the violent murders and rapists, we have to ask which ones. Because if the police are also committing murder and rape for all of the same reasons, we're not going to actually make people more safe. And the abolitionist project is about how do we make people more safe? You know, when I was in law school, I read these stories of women who would initiate sexual experiences with their husbands to avoid being victims of violence later. And I couldn't wrap my head around that because it, it wasn't rape in the way that I traditionally have been taught to think about rape. I had to like go through a decolonial, a decolonial like process around what does it mean to be a victim of sexual assault? But these were initiated encounters with people who were suffering violence ultimately. And there's no 911 response that you can have to something like that, right? So when I try to talk about why it's important to be against the carceral state for solving sexual violence, the other side of that is sexual freedom. The other side of that is not how do we just stop people from killing people, but how do we have just relationships to each other, to our employers, to our communities, to these institutions, to our planet. So we're trying to get a system, a, a practice of just relationships. It's not about putting people in cages to prove a point, but actually preserving and increasing our ability to live beautiful lives. And that's the project that I think is worth pursuing. So I think we're going to maybe take one more question. I know we're getting close on time, um, but just wanted to um, at least take a couple questions from the audience. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a spicy one. It's kind of the one that we, all of us, I feel like don't want to answer, but it's the one that we're going to have to keep answering. Um, so this one's from Yasmin. Given that there is a national election approaching in the United States, 
Um, I was wondering what you all thought about the discourse of voting as harm reduction. What does it mean to vote in empire? Um, and understanding, right, that this election, whether we like it or not, is going to have huge implications for Palestine and for abolitionist organizing. Um, and so I'll also drop that question um, in the chat. Would love to hear at least a couple of folks' thoughts on it. I don't know. I'm just going to shout out that we got Cori Bush going to to the Capitol. <laughs> That's big. That's big, y'all. I mean, Cori Bush is one of us. She was on the streets and she was on the streets last week before the election. <laughs> she was getting tear gas. She got hit by rubber bullets. She's ours, you know, and she's never been in, in the Capitol building. She's going, she's going to be elected in November and she's going to represent us in January. Um, you know, so like, I don't, like, I'm not the kind of person that gets excited about electoral politics, but I'm excited. <laughs> so, you know, you know, we need these glimmers of hope. Um, you know, the the squad has done some amazing things and in, in just like standing up right to this narrative. Um, it's the reason why we're seeing the DNC, you know, implode around the issue of Palestine. Right. Um, they can't handle it. They can't even have Linda Sarsour in a, in a a freaking uh, virtual chat um, because they're so afraid of the power that we're building. So, you know, I'm not, you know, going to be excited about um, any of the presidential, <laughs> you know, messaging that's coming out, but you can be sure that I'm excited about um, the fissures that um, the squad is going to create. I can try to answer. So, yeah, yes, there's an election. No one's really, really excited about it. Um, you know, that's that's all that is true. I think the most important thing that people can do is join organizations, get politicized, and figure out the strategy that works best for them. I think it's unhelpful to argue with people on social media about whether and why they should be shamed into voting. Um, I just don't think that's effective. I think it's so, so, so important that people think about and struggle with other people around what's the best strategy to move forward. For some communities, that means not voting for the president, but maybe tackling electoral politics. For other people, it may mean not voting and not engaging, but continue to organize and hit the streets. Um, that that answer is going to range depending on like your relationship to the particular person in office. And so I think it can be harm reduction if you are working in an electoral justice projects situation and that's the re the harm that you choose to reduce right like that's what you have to do but i don't think that shaming people for not voting or you know being self-righteous about not voting i don't think either one of those are helpful you know i also don't know i mean the stakes are unfortunately always high it's not as if you know kamala harris and netanyahu are not on good terms so whatever is going to happen you know in palestine unfortunately is going to suffer like regardless of who is in the administration now what we can be in control of is our resistance like that's what we can be we can be in control of our organizing we can be in control of how we decide to organize and struggle and dream about you know what are our responses to the harm that's happening 
happening, but what are we trying to put into its place? And so I always encourage people to not look for someone to validate whether you're going to vote or whether you're not going to vote, but hopefully that you're part of a network, you're part of a community, that you're part of an organization where y'all are figuring out what's the best strategy for you. Because we need people to be organized. You know, we need people to dream. We need people to make this happen. And so that's that's how I will respond to that question. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I have never voted based off of um, politics on Palestine because that they have always consistently been um, a- against Palestinian liberation. Um, but and I, too, am struggling with this question of how do we vote? in November, if we vote in November, and especially considering the millions who are disenfranchised in this country and who are not even given the right to vote. Um, And there is a project by the Emancipation Initiative in Massachusetts in which you can pair up with someone who's disenfranchised um, and donate your vote, basically, um, to them, to give them that opportunity. So for those who are are not as excited um, as we all are, 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 are not excited like we all are, that's a potential option that I, I recommend and uh, plan to use for myself this year. Thank you all so much for that rich discussion. Um, I feel like I've learned so much and I hope folks watching at home were able to learn a lot as well. Um, and I'm gonna pass it to, um, to Olivia to close this out. Yeah, thank you, Zaina. That was such a, a great note to close on. Uh, my name's Olivia. I'm with the Democratic Socialists of America's uh, National BDS and Palestine Solidarity Working Group. Um, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. So surveillance planes have been <laughs> flying overhead while we've been having this conversation. Um, I just want to close by underscoring how important this conversation is to have in this moment right now, the same week where we have the Democratic Convention happening, where We have the party rehabilitating war criminals and their presidential nominee is smearing Palestinian organizers and BDS and, you know, offering nothing more than platitudes when it comes to the crisis of state violence that we are facing on so many levels. Um, You know, as Palestine organizers in the U.S., we're also seeing New York City DSA being smeared for their support of the Palestinian cause. Um, And I just want to state very clearly for everyone to understand that as the Democrats have watched the left build more power, they have also taken note of what happened to Jeremy Corbyn. They're ready to try it on us now. So they've been attacking Ilhan Omar. They attack Linda Sarsour. They try to ban socialists from the legislature. The movement for black lives has been attacked for their support of BDS. And as our movements continue to build power and momentum, this is the thing they will attack us on because they think it's an easy win because they've been successful with it before. Um, And if we at all back down in the face of these attacks, it will only serve to legitimize them and to strengthen them. So we have to focus in on this fight and strengthen these ties and draw these connections between our movements um, and this international struggle for freedom because we can't get free without each other. We won't be strong enough, Um, but united we cannot be defeated. Um, And that is what they are scared of. And now it's time to prove them right. Um, And as Niall grounded us with so well at the beginning of this talk, I think these things might feel impossible, but the impossible is the least we should be demanding. Um, So thank you again, everyone, for being on here. Thank you to our amazing panelists, to Zaina for moderating. Um, Thanks again to Haymarket Books for hosting, um, Dream Defenders, Adela Justice Project, Palestine Legal, 
JVP South Florida, JVP New Orleans, and uh, the folks in GSA Palestine Working Group, um, and everyone else who make this happen. Um, this will be up on Haymarket's YouTube afterwards, so feel free to share. Uh, and onwards in solidarity, comrades. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.